had an opportunity to uh, paint the piano for Diplo. And he was performing at the ACC and I think MLSE paid, was paying for it all. And, uh, you know, this is like, I think probably like three or four years ago. And, um, they're like, yeah, we can, uh, we can give you $1,500. Uh, and like at the time I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I need the money. And, uh, so I told my mom and she's like, what? $1,500. That's it. And then she's like, you need to go back and tell them you need more. I go back, tell them I need more. I don't end up, end up doing it. So they gave it to someone else. And so when I say measure the opportunity costs, you need to know, like, doing that at that time, that could have been a really good look. You know, you don't know where things would take you. So uh, I learned to be able to say yes until you can afford to say no. over everything podcast to introduce ourselves as the host i'm alex and i'm owen this is the podcast where we receive stories tips and strategies from entrepreneurs who've done it to help you grow your business and take yourself to the next level as a person later on the podcast today we have jordan souk yo jordan has been featured in vice cbc complex and more he currently has two exhibits going on or two projects what should i say one in union station and he has a life-size Snoop Dogg traveling every LCBO. Yo, he's on a, on a ride right now. Mm-hmm. Major things right by now. Jordan, man. Major things. For sure. So, yeah, Owen, girl, what's good with you? A lot. A lot is good with me, bro. A positive week. Started my new job yesterday at uh, Vidyard as partner manager. Really excited about that opportunity. The past two weeks, you know, we've been grinding. Uh, thanks for Uplift Media. And man, we we got we did we learned a lot this two weeks. You know what we've been doing, guys, has been we're meeting with a couple advertising partners, some big brands that you might know, like you will know about and use them every single day. And uh, we approached them for advertising opportunities, and we learned a lot of what it takes to work with brands as audio sponsors, especially of a show of our size. You know, to start things off, bro, like, I mean, what is like the first major thing that you learned from, you know, meeting with these two meetings? I mean, there are two separate companies. One was on the extreme end. Hey, we work with these large podcasts with over 150K downloads. The other one was like, hey, like you guys are relatively like, yeah, we get it, but we can do more than just audio sponsorships. We can do like a whole package. What was your biggest takeaway from doing these two meetings? My biggest takeaway was the use of ourselves as our likeness, our, mm-hmm. our personalities is more than just the podcast. You know, we really have to focus on ourselves as creatives and the network we're building and not just the audio podcast listens um, because when it comes to just podcasts, this is a struggle to get real podcast advertisers on there, unless you have mm-hmm. thousands upon thousands upon thousands of listeners. But if you focus on your creativity and your brand itself, you can still possess deals where people are putting you on billboards and structuring real um, significant brand deals. You know, mm-hmm. um, also we talked to Sean Anthony, and he has a successful podcast. He's a full time podcaster. 
um, providing for his family. And he does it through Patreon. He does it through um, working and creating products mm -hmm. for his podcast listeners. You know, so there's there's different angles you can take here when it comes to monetizing a podcast. You know, we have merch. Make sure you go to um, some support our podcast and purchase some of our merch, hustleovereverything.co. Yes, um, yes. And there's levers you can pull. There's Once you have an audience, once you have people listening to you, there's other things you can do to make money. So um, I, I, at first I was a bit discouraged first because in one meeting they were like, listen, you have this much? Okay, we're going to direct you to the agency where they can uh, scope this out and see if it's worth our time. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and another meeting like, we're ready to go. Go ahead. Like. Yeah, like that one meeting was just like, man, we work with whales, right? And the whales, like in the podcasting world, if you can like picture a whale, you might know the Joe Rogan, like the Daily News is, the crime, true crime podcast that you see on the top 10 every single week. Uh, someone like Andrew Schultz with Flagrant Fouls or Brilliant Idiots. Um, Flagrant 2. Flagrant 2. Um, yeah. Or Call Me Daddy. Like those shows, those are the ones like that get through like corporate and you sit down with them and work a deal. But when you're like an up and comer like us, you're working with the agencies, you're working with, they're integrating you into like a whole media plan and you're just one of like many hundred shows that they're going to be working with and you're getting a slice of the pie. So it was very humbling. It was very humbling to learn how podcasting works because the thing about the industry, there's no blueprint to it. There's no textbook where you can go, okay, for podcast advertising, this, 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 and that. In CPG world, you know, okay, sales, product, Facebook advertising, build brand, build community. It's true and tested. It's been done before. But with this podcasting space, it's very new because a lot of podcasting podcasts are coming in the space. There's only like the 5% of shows who are eating, eating. And then the rest of us are working to remain consistent, to build an audience, to make it past 10 episodes. You know, on average, every podcast that starts barely ever makes it past 10 episodes. So you have like the wannabes and then the, the ones who truly are, are gonna bees, which we are striving to become. You know, this is episode 81 now and we're like striving to get to that level. But this was a big, big um, eye opener into how things work. And one thing as well, too, like, you know, like when you're working with these brands, um, you know, like tell them everything about your your podcast, like who you are, who your personalities are, because they're not really investing in your show. They're investing in you as people and how you can look in front of their customers or potential customers who they're looking to add to users as customers or users to their products. So, um, yeah, it was disheartening at first, bro, but we kind of saw that as like, man, there's the big leagues. And then we're like in, in, in little league world, man, you know, like there's the no. pros, like, like no, in a no, sense of like, there's like, okay, there's like the all-stars, like whatever, like, yeah, we're in the same league, but like there's different levels towards like tiers. There's like, okay, there's the LeBrons of the podcast. There's like the Jordans. There's like those people there who are ranked. And then we are like the ones who are working to get ranked. And, to get the big dollars, it's like you have to show stats, right? To get a max contract, bro, to get the bag, it's like, bro, you have to have like performed over a certain period of time. So that was like a big thing. And it's not like we didn't know that. We knew that. But we felt that, or I can speak for myself. I felt like, you know what? We have a great brand. We have a niche. We know micro influencers are a thing now. We can get in. And we did get in with one with one brand. And that's just about like working through that to really like hone in on what works. But the one company, it's like a, 
it's pretty much how every company works. To get that other company, it's like it's not every company is gonna want to like do a billboard, do like a thing, personality. It's like you really have to hit that, and they have to present that to you. But you going in is just like you can't. You have to pitch it and see if they like it. But if they don't, most likely you're gonna get like the bigger companies who want like the over 100k downloads per month over certain episodes and etc. And that's just finding the the product fit, right? The the right fit for your brand. You know, if someone's coming to you and saying, hey, I want the biggest podcast in the, in the nation, then, all right, that's probably not for you then. You know, but if someone's saying, hey, I want to not only work with you in the short capacity, um, but in the long capacity where we're growing together, you know, we're you're becoming a champion of the brand to showcase how people use the, that product on a regular day basis, then you have a strong use case. And there's different levels you can pull, right? And one example that I want to say is that, you know, if I have a CMO podcast, right, I'm interviewing different CMOs and some of them become leads for a business, right, and that lead turns into a seven-figure client, right, you just monetize your podcast, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And now, who makes more money, the person that's continuously monetizing the podcast that way or the person that has, you know, brand deals worth 5K, 6K, you know, from optic-wise, it could look like that per- second person, but in, re- in the actuality, it's the person who has that CMO podcast because they're getting consistent, big, big leads to their business, right? Mm-hmm. So you, gotta, you really got to look at it from a perspective of, you know, um, what you're trying to do. Are you trying to grow um, a sponsorship podcast? Are you trying to grow a product based off ebooks, courses, services? So, and... With that way, you can hone in and dive deeper into the offerings you're giving, right? Mm-hmm. Because you know, one one podcast I forget his name, but um, he got a like an ice cream deal where not only is he promoting the po- um the product on his podcast, but he's also doing it on his socials, he's also doing it on his newsletter, and he's also creating videos for them so they can use it on their um um content. So mm-hmm. so that's like a bigger deal, still a podcast deal, but it's a more creative deal. So um he can use it towards his podcast, but he can use it towards other things as well, right? So there's ways to go about it, you know. It's it's a, it's a interesting business that you can finesse to suit your own, you know, um, model. So yeah, you gotta get creative. And also, when I add this, man, it's like podcasting. If you really look at it, if you step out of it, podcasting is now about positioning and sales because you have like think every podcast is a sales business right now. Whatever you do, you are approaching, you're gunning for that advertiser. It's a sales thing. You got to sell them on your show. If you don't have the stats of an all-star podcast that's like trending top 10 every single week. Positioning, CMO podcast. If you position CMO and you are a CMO yourself and you're talking to CMOs, you are only doing that to like build a clientele business. So I think what we're discovering now, bro, is that you either you either on two sides of the spectrum. You're using podcasting as an outlet towards just connections and building a bigger business for yourself on top of what you already do, or you're looking to build a um, a channel, which a lot of people are trying to do, where you're building an audience, you engage audience, and you're looking to eat off brand partnerships over a long time. So it's deciding where you want to be, and you know I see us as the second one where we're building an audience of entrepreneurs and et cetera, where we can get a lot of different brands to work with us. And ultimately, bro, I am very, 
I want to say I feel like the content creation space is what the startup world was like in the 2010s, 2011. Like you come out with an app and you whatever. I think podcasting, um, creating content, that is the new tech bubble. That is the new, hey, I'm going to, you remember that app, Yo? The guy, made, you click Yo, you send someone a Yo and he raised a million dollars. That's what podcasting is. And that's why everybody's trying to get into it. It's like, how can you build an audience? Everybody now is a media business. Every person, whatever your social media, you are a media company. The only question is, what are you going to do to get eyeballs on you? And that's what everybody's trying to figure out. And if you figure that out in your way, do it your way and go eat. And once you learn how to eat, you'll forever eat forever because you'll know what to do. And you have people looking at you for a long period of time as long as you keep creating and innovating and feeding your audience like content that they want to keep hearing or listening or watching or consuming over posts and et cetera. So everything is a content business now, just depending how you look at it. Where, you know, one thing Gary Vee said that was very genius is um, all the businesses now have to have a content front end and a business back end, you know? Mm. So if you're a plumber, you know, think about how you can have content in the front end of becoming the best plumber in the city or in your in your nation or state, you know, and then having the plumbing back end to fulfill those services out, you know. With that being said, man, let's hop into the podcast with Jordan Souk, man. I'm really the excited. Actual about podcast, it. you know. We spoke about podcasting. Now let's actually hop into the pod podcast. Hustle over everything, baby. Let's go. Hey, what's up, guys? To support the show for free, here are some main options. If you're on Apple, make sure you rate and write a review of our podcast. This makes a huge difference and helps support the show. If you're on Spotify, follow us. If you're on Google Play, hit subscribe and auto-download so you'll be notified and have a fresh pod ready to go when we drop. Lastly, make sure you share the podcast on Instagram or whichever social platform you use and tag us. On Twitter, we're at 247Hustlers. On Instagram, we're at 247Hustler. And on Facebook, we're hustling over everything. And now, guys, got to pay attention to this point. We just dropped a new newsletter. It's called The Underrated. It's a weekly newsletter that breaks down untold stories that highlight game-changing business strategies that shape our sports, music, and culture. It drops once a week on Mondays early in the morning to prep you for the week. So subscribe to that, and we'll see you in the pod. So, how many so, projects do you usually have on the go? Sorry, Al. Go ahead. I was about to say something like that. Um, on the go. I mean, it's weird because I've like recently picked up this like habit of like having multiple projects on the go. It used to be like focus on one and continue, but then. I got to the place where it's like one project could like drag on for like two, three, four, five months. You know what I mean? And so like in the interim, you got to be doing other stuff as well. So, you know, right now I'd probably say I have like six different projects on the go right now. Damn. Yeah. That's yeah, serious. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty cool. I think, you know, I remember like, you know, um, I mean, back when I was younger, like Lil Wayne was like my favorite rapper. You know what I mean? And like the thing about Wayne is uh, he has so much like music, right? And he just like, they say he like he had, I remember he had an interview and they're like, oh yeah, they say you have like uh, 450 songs unreleased. He's like 450. He's like, 
I go into the studio one night and I do, I could do 10 to 15 to 20 songs in a night. You know what I mean? And so I took that idea of like just making a lot of art. Right. And so like right now, you know, I'm sitting on uh, a scaled model for a large scale public art project that I'm dealing as well as I think three different collections that I haven't even put out yet that are just like stuff that I've like made. So, you know, I'm excited to maybe do something with those. Maybe not. It's like, it's by the, it's funny. Cause like by the time you get to put it out, you know, it's like, I'm not even there artistically anymore. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, you know, by the time, like y'all would have seen this project that gets, you know, sort of put into the public. Um, like I would have been three years older than when I first came up with that idea, you know? So that's one of the things too, is like, you know, pushing yourself to make great art. It like really like has to like sort of stand the test of time, you know, and sort mm-hmm. of like have a transcendent feeling. So, um, yeah, I think that's something I'm looking forward to. I was going to mention the whole thing you said about Lil Wayne, right? It's like even Jay-Z, he does the same thing. He doesn't write anything. Like when he's recording a, like an album, I heard, he just goes into the studio and he just records it all in one take, right? Yeah. And there's like one, even in uh, Magna Carta Holy Grail, right? Like he'll say like one thing over and over, like, tit, tit, tit. I don't know if you saw those commercials, like when he's like out doing for yeah. Samsung, he's like, yeah. tit, tit, tit. and then he'll just like think of that one little yeah, yeah. beat that- and then he'll just come with bars straight for it. Yeah, I remember that uh, black and white commercial with him and like Pharrell and Timberland, I think, were in it. Yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, like, you know, it's weird. Like, I think artists like have like different approaches and like you could see like the parallel and like, you know, uh, musicians and hip hop artists and like visual mm-hmm. artists because um, an artist like Jean Michel Basquiat would probably be more an artist like that where uh, you could just go. And you have like, or a Picasso who just has like a plethora of work that just like, you, like, you know, I think when Picasso died, they said he had like, you know, 10,000 paintings or something crazy like that. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's just like, or 10,000 works, whatever that is, but still it's a lot of work, you know? So, um, I think of that and I'm like, I don't necessarily know if I'm that artist either. I mean, there's spurts and times where I can like hit those peaks, but I think based on the medium that you're working in, you're kind of limited to it. You know what I mean? Like you can't just one night, like sculpt, like, you know, the statue of David, it just would be like almost impossible, you know? But I think that, um, it's cool. Like how art is interpreted now. And so, uh, people can really do a lot with a little, you know, but I think Mm -hmm. like, you, f- you find that energy more with uh, painters, you know, because like they can just be really inspired, especially like expressionists and abstract expressionists. They're like the ones that can just sort of like approach something from a non-technical standpoint and just let their mind go. And, and, and that also like for art, right? Once you do like, for example, the 10,000 thing that you're saying, right? It removes like the whole thing about perfectionism, right? If you can like see like the caliber of art these people do, there's no such thing as like a finished project. It's just that you continue doing and doing and doing and doing. So it removes like that start stop thing. Like if you get, grab a canvas and you paint, 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 it might not be good now. But if you look back at it two years, like from then, you're like, wow, that's a piece of art like that I can put up. So I think what I just realized from what you're talking about right now is that no matter what, like, craft you're in like for example as podcasters we can make a bunch of shows and 
you got to detach your feeling away from it because it's just part of the artistry of you as a podcaster or you as an artist, as a creator. I thought that's pretty cool. For sure, for sure. And it's a muscle, right? Like, once you keep working out that muscle, it just makes it, you become a stronger artist, a stronger interviewer, a stronger whatever it is, you know? So, yeah. It's like, so, yeah. So, it's great. It's your muscle. It's great. Exactly. Exactly. So, we haven't even introduced you to our audience, man. So, let, let me let me take a second back and uh, introduce you. So, today, ladies and gentlemen, you know, one aspect of entrepreneurship we haven't really talked about is artwork. You know, usually there's four use cases for artwork. You know, you either love it, it's an investment, you want to increase your social status, or it's a gift. Today, we got a professional in the building. He's one of the biggest mixed media artists coming out of Canada. He's worked with big companies like Puma, Way Home Music Festival. He's worked with artists like Baka Not Nice, just John, shout out Just John, and Castro Guapo, shout out Castro. And we mentioned some of his uh, pieces have been acquired by some of the biggest artists in our city. You know, this was one little guy, I don't know if you heard of him, his name is Drake. Yeah, he's you know just a regular guy from the block, you know. Exactly. So, yeah. so today we have the one and only Jordan Souk. Jordan, welcome to the show, man. How are you? Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate this. I love that intro. That was that was great. That was really you great. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I'm man. trying to you're trying, you're trying to step it up a little bit. You know, step by step. I see you guys. That's, Pay that's homage. Really, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yeah. So now, uh, walk us through like the the first time you realized that like art was something you wanted to do full time. This is what you want to change your life with. Um. I think I was probably like 23. I knew I wanted to do something creative. Um, I think the moment like I knew I wanted to be uh, doing something creative to uh, a scale was when I went to the Kanye uh, Yeezus concert. I think that was back in 2014. Um, And I got to see uh, his performance. And I had seen, um, you know, uh, different rap hip-hop shows before and i almost would compare this show more to like when i would go to the prince of wales theater and see like beauty and the beast or uh lion king and i saw like that level of artistry uh in that but in like a a hip-hop show but you know this was easy so like wasn't even really hip-hop which was like so amazing to like really feel and be in an immersive sort of art experience and so that was probably like the moment or the time when i said uh yeah, like that's what I want to do um, mm-hmm. with my life or something like that. All right, let, yeah, well, let's talk about this. Yeah. All right, sorry, I'm sorry. What was some? I love the Yeezus concert series, man. Like, what were some of your top moments in that concert series? Oh, man. Um, well, so when he had performed, uh, it was the second day in Toronto. So he had just done uh, the Thursday night show. And this, so this is the Friday night show. And I think uh, this is probably December 23rd, so the day before Christmas Eve. So it's already, the city's a buzz. This is 2014, you know, Christmas time. You know how the city is. And um, he did, uh, he did uh, Bound, right? Uh, that one song. 
And, uh, you know, he, instead of saying, um, you know, maybe we can make it to Christmas, he's like, oh, and it's two days away from Christmas. Mm-hmm. And then the song blended with um, this uh, this other song, and the beat became really familiar. And then all of a sudden you started hearing, like, the crowd really started to buzz. And then all of a sudden out of the corner, like, this light-skinned dude in all white comes out. And it's Drake. And I think that was like the apex of the show, right? This is, you know, this is 2014 Drake. Uh, you know, everything's on a wave in the city. It still is. But, you know, this is when we were really on like the idea of potential and like what we could be, you know? And so like, I think seeing that was like really just like a life changing sort of uh, experience. You have to feel it, you know? Facts, 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 facts. All right. So. From that point on, like, walk us through, like, the steps you were taking to, like, start building up. Like, uh, what were some of the projects that got the ball rolling for you? Oh, man. Okay. So, um, I mean, uh, so I was still uh, in school uh, and I had reached out uh, to someone in the city. Uh, and that person actually knew someone that I was working with at the time. I was working at uh, TD Bank at the time while going to school. And uh, I ended up getting this contract with the city of Barrie to uh, produce 50 garbage cans or something like that. And so I painted a bunch of garbage cans that were placed all over town. On top of that, then they you know, recommissioned me to do like uh, 10 different electrical boxes all around town. And the thing is, you know, this is a pretty common thing that happens in Toronto where there's a whole program administration for it. And, you know, different artists put a bid in and I think they would roughly pay every artist in Toronto. Now I think they pay him like, I think five, six, 600 bucks, uh, an electrical box. And, you know, being in Barrie, Barrie is not a small town, but it's not a, not Toronto at all. You know what I mean? And so it had enough population where, you know, you would be doing enough work, but there's not like a whole heap of artists really, you know, coming out of there. And so my communication with them was sort of figuring out a deal where I pretty much did all the electrical boxes in the city. And, you know, I was able to negotiate a price with them that at the time was like, hey, I'll make money off my art, like right off the jump. And so did that, um, started getting the ball rolling after that. Uh, I did, um, an exhibition at the uh, college there, Georgian College. Um, no one bought anything. Uh, my friends came through. It was on the same day. I think Raptors were playing a game six, you know, during the same time. So everyone was like not even really trying to even be there. You know, it was definitely a learning experience, but it was like really cool, you know, because like at the time, like I just wanted to like make art and put art out. And, you know, there's no real curatorial direction to my show. It was just random pieces of art that I kind of like put together like nothing was the same but yeah I put those all out and uh I think a couple months after that I uh, moved to Toronto um you know born in Toronto but now I'm moving there uh to live uh, with my by myself well living with a friend and so we rented out uh a house that you know we had like he had one floor I had another floor so I had the basement but uh it was a townhouse and there was like some random like you know 70 year old lady that lived up top and it was just like a weird sort of like dynamic and so i'm in the house you know he's an artist too so i'm in the house he's in the house um he's seeing someone at the time i'm seeing someone at the time so there's an interesting dynamic in the house and there are some really foreign uh korean people that live next door 
And um, anyway, so, you know, everyone does their art projects, whatever. Uh, but one day I'm in the backyard, mind you, uh, spray painting. And uh, all of a sudden they're like taking pictures of me, you know, getting ready to call the cops, calling the landlord, this and that, because I'm spray painting in the backyard and they could smell it from their backyard, apparently. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm outside. So I'm like, I don't know what else you want me to do, you know. Um Anyways, so not too long after that, I uh, had to dip up out of there, um, got my own space, uh, well, with someone I was seeing at the time, and we were uh, in the east end of town. Uh, now, r- roughly around now is when I f- um, did that show I did at uh, Only One Gallery, um, which was Kid and Company. And so uh, this is now, okay, my chance at doing like, an actual exhibition and of course um probably the biggest snowstorm of like i kid you not like the last five years that day in february like my parents couldn't come it was just a big mess but a lot of people still came through and uh you know sold a couple paintings um and then from there like you know just continued to do uh, different group shows and connect with different artists uh linked up with just john roughly around that time my big homie cans um you know reached out um talking about um getting pieces to uh different members of ovo and you know how all that goes and so i was doing um you know paintings and uh for him and they're going over there uh and um yeah, it was just like an experience of just like really living that artist lifestyle. And at the time, like I was still um, working at TD Bank uh, part time, trying to make some extra money to like reinvest into my art and like, you know, keep a living. Um, and then uh, after that, the person I was seeing at the time, uh, we broke up. And so I was back in my parents' place. Uh, and... So now I'm at this place where I've done some stuff, but like, I'm still not, you know, close to where I want to be. And even so now I feel like I'm just starting, but, uh, I kept, people kept, you know, I'd be in Toronto every weekend and I'd be coming, uh, down from Barrie, uh, from where my parents were staying, uh, to Toronto on the weekends and like staying at friends' houses. Um, and people would be asking me, they'd be like, you know, what are you up to? What are you saying? I kept telling them like, yeah, um, I'm getting a studio in the West End. And mind you, I hadn't looked at anything at that time. And I just kept telling people, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be getting a studio in the West End. And then I kid you not, the first place I looked at, found this place. Uh, and I consider it to be manifested. And, you know, I got my studio in the West End. And since then, I've been, you know, making art uh, in here. And uh, like I said, out of town as well. So, yeah, that's pretty much the uh, long story short in a mm-hmm. nutshell. You manifested that shit, bro. You manifested it. So let's let's go back before TD, right? Let's go like the younger Jordan years, like teenage, high school, uh, because it takes years to become a craftsman, to become an artist, to master your your artistry. Walk us through those days. Like, what were you creating? What were you doing that led up to you being able to take that like masterful step where when you're investing your money in TD, things started like rolling for you. Okay. So, um, when I was in high school, uh, I think I would have been in grade 11 at this time. Um, I started this, uh, t-shirt company. So I actually applied for one of those government grants, those summer, uh, start a company, summer company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
And so I got the $3,000 grant to uh, quote, quote, start my company. And so it was a t-shirt company called Arrow Addict. And essentially it was like, you know, my art literally on t-shirts. And I remember um, in Barrie, there's this uh, big event called Kempenfest. And so I, you know, reached out to the people running it and said, I don't have any money. Um, but can I like have like a small table like somewhere, you know? Um, and they're like, yeah, sure. We'd love to help, you know? And like, I was literally right by the park on the water. Uh, and this is like one of the largest events, mind you, in Ontario. So a lot of, uh, people from, you know, a certain demographic come to sort of these artisan crafty tent, like, mm-hmm. um, summer things. And so I remember, uh, I had four different t-shirt designs and I think, uh, I had 30 of every t-shirt design. And in the first day I sold them all. And so, by the next day, I had to get some printed uh, again, um, had some for the later half of the day, uh, sold those. And uh, I think over that weekend, I made a course of like $5,000, $6,000. Um, and so, you know, here I am in high school with like, you know, five, $6,000. I don't know how to run a company. I'm literally just, all I know is to draw on a piece of paper. And these are, it's funny because like I drew these drawings in math class. And so I took the drawings, brought them to the screen printer. He printed them on the shirts and they sold. And so that was sort of like the initial inception of like where that sort of like uh, hustler's attitude sort of came from was like the idea of like, you know, being able to take my creativity and like monetize it. I've always been able to like, someone figure out that bridge and so you know now it's sort of like uh having those experiences sort of help uh go forward from uh an artisan survival standpoint i would say yeah those summer company grants come in clutch i I did the same thing with the t-shirt company i did like uh my brand was called recruits at the time right so it's more like aspirational streetwear athleisure I did that like after Ryerson and then, you know, transitioned into like doing tech and apps. But, uh, man, like those grants are actually like, they do wonders for people who have ideas and just want to create something, man. Yeah, man, for sure. Like, I think, you know, the government, the things I would suggest if anyone's listening in uh, the Ontario government, make those things easier for people of color who don't have access to be able to apply for. And uh, they definitely need to uh, change up the jargon on a lot of it. You know what I mean? I think the average person communicates on a 10th grade level. And so it's just like the people reading this are like, you know, people with master's degrees and, you know, college degrees. So it's just like, I think there's a bit of a miscommunication in the grant sort of sector right now, but hopefully that could change. Yeah. It's a big gap. Yeah. But man, 5k in high school is like, that's brand. dollars bro. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> I couldn't tell you where the money really went. Uh, you know, it's like one of those things. It's like exactly what you said. It's 5K in high school. So you're just like, you're buying all these things and like, you know, um, tutus. Like, you're just like, yeah. But I'm pretty sure I, I use some of the money to uh, to go to school after. But uh, I, I, I do know I bought a PlayStation 3 at the time with, uh, with the money. Um, that was one thing for sure. But that was what I also, man. yeah. Well, that was one of the learning lessons from that. Was like, you know, you're you got to reinvest in yourself. That's like one of the uh, first things I think people need to do before you can even like um, invest in like others, and you know, you need to reinvest in yourself. So that was like the key lesson from all that was like you know, um, 
don't take out, you know, anything until you're really ready to. One thing I noticed as well is that, you know, you've come a long way in, in your exhibition. So let's talk about your most recent one. Then let's get into the business of art. Yeah. Walk us through, um, you know, your piece with with Snoop Dogg. How did that happen and come to life? Yeah. So um, one of my friends and curators, uh, Ashley McKenzie, she uh, actually curated this campaign uh, with 19 Crimes. And so they selected three different artists, one from Calgary, one from, uh, I want to say Vancouver, and then the other one, obviously, from Toronto to work on this uh, idea of like, you know, paying homage to Snoop and like this wine uh, coming out with the 19 Crimes uh, Cali Red flavor. So that's kind of how that really happened. Uh, Ashley and I worked on uh, a couple of shows actually before. She curated uh, the exhibition that I was in at the Power Plant Gallery. I think that was back in 2018. And then she also uh, curated uh, the Manifesto uh, Art Festival one year um, that I was in it as well too. So um, shout out to Ashley. But yeah, that's kind of how that uh, all kind of came in they selected me and uh i was able to deliver no you definitely did well yeah i was gonna say you snapped with that because i was looking at the video of that snoop figure and uh i have like a couple questions for you right um first of all did you ever get a chance to meet snoop and say hey i made this amazing figure of you no i haven't and like i would love to be able to but no i haven't but uh I feel like I've met him spiritually because like when the statue was in the space here, I was watching this uh, four part documentary on Netflix uh, about hip hop and Snoop was interviewed and all the lights are off. So the only light is coming from the TV, but you're seeing like Snoop, but you're also hearing his voice come from the TV. So it was kind of like a metaphysical experience in that sense. Uh you know, kind of like how they would have like the Greek sort of warriors and stuff like that in the temples. Yeah. It's like kind of that sort of feel there. But uh, I haven't met him, unfortunately. I would love to and uh, show him the piece, but uh, pause. But no, I don't think. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Yo, and like, where's the sculpture now? Um, so it's out of Toronto now. I think it might be going to uh, another LCBO location, maybe in Montreal. I'm not uh, too sure. Um, but it is on the move. Um, and uh, it should be, you know, traveling around Canada, uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll see. But uh, yeah. Sounds good. And um, one thing about that, right? Like, you know, not to get into the numbers, but such a project like that, you know, you created like a masterpiece of a of art uh, you sculpted this thing you made it like really really unique i also saw like the corks you made um there was like different of them with different facial expressions of snoop so yeah. getting into like such a business partnership like that uh what goes into like the breakdown of you know what you would be getting like if you could say hey for sculpting for this 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 and that which gives you like that number which will equate for the the whole cost of the project for you to do for you to like deliver to them yeah it's really hard to say um simply because of a couple things um they usually give you like a framework of what they're sort of working in and like it's more like hey can we make this happen now um the one thing i always weigh for me personally um and i always encourage people is uh opportunity cost and so that's like a big cost that people don't factor into their budget breakdown. 
in the sense of if it came down to it and uh, this project, let's say, cost $50,000 to make uh, and you were $2,000 short of making it, let's say it costs $52,000 and let's say they gave you $50,000, for example, um, is the opportunity of you taking on that project more or less than that $2,000 difference in that you would pay or depending on whoever, but someone would pay $2,000 to be able to exhibit that. And so that's always something that like, I would always um, consider uh, in terms of like the budget breakdown. Um, now the thing to consider, you know, with art, it's really interesting because you have to consider your materials. Uh, you have to consider, uh, and, and materiality is a big thing because sculpting something out of plastic and sculpting something out of clay and something out of bronze is, you know, two, three different costs, right? So that's the first thing you want to, uh, figure out what that is. The second thing is the time that you're going to be putting into it. Right. And what that looks like. Um, I don't think that um, any artist should really be working for free uh, per se, but they need to be able to uh, budget their time accordingly. Um, now, I don't know how other artists work per se in terms of, oh, uh, this costs this based on this. I personally don't have a, a situation where I break down um, what. Uh, it looks like in terms of uh, this is my time for sculpting or this is my time for painting. I think more so on a project like a mural, you could probably do that um, a little bit better uh, in terms of um, sort of budgeting out what that looks like based off of your time uh, because it's painting. So it's a little bit more lateral, but when uh, something like this uh, is into play, this is like months of planning and work that goes into it, uh, as well as actual fabrication. Um, so all those things ought to be accounted for and, uh, how you make it, you know, one of the things that I find is, um, there are foundries and fabrication houses that do that. But, um, with this project, we actually built it in house. And so we actually created a 3d printing farm, which was actually, uh, more inexpensive to do. Um, and print the materials ourselves and the fabricate ourselves, then outsource it. So um, those pictures that you see on Instagram, stuff like that, that's literally us there working on it with our with our small team. Um, yeah, so shout out to uh, shout out to the whole Jordan Sue Studios team, Theo, uh, Liliana, um, for putting in a really good work on uh, on that there. But uh, yeah, so that's kind of the breakdown. Is you want to consider your time, other people's time, the materials. Uh, and then obviously to, um, how you're going to make it, you know, transportation and logistics also, those would be like, I guess the five things, um, that I would say that, uh, factor into your, uh, budget breakdown and then obviously opportunity cost as well. And I just want to throw in a quick story. So, uh, I remember this is back in 2017, uh, I had an opportunity to, uh, paint the piano for, um, the, uh, Way Home Festival. No, 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 no. This was, um, uh, I think it, what's his name? Um, Diplo. And he was performing at the ACC, and I think MLSC paid, was paying for it all. And, uh, you know, this is like, I think probably like three or four years ago. And um, they're like, yeah, we can, uh, we can give you $1,500. 
uh, and like at the time, I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. You know, I need the money. Um, and uh, so I told my mom, and she's like, what? $1,500, that's it? And then she's like, you need to go back and tell them you need more. I go back, tell them I need more. I don't end up, end up doing it. So they gave it to someone else. And so when I say measure the opportunity costs, you need to know, like, doing that at that time, that could have been a really good look. You know, you don't know where things would take you. So uh, I learned to be able to say yes until you can afford to say no. Mm, it's all about leverage. Yeah, something like that. You know? Stacking leverage, yeah. We always talk about stacking, about stacking leverage. leverage. You know, but hey, listen now. Now they'd be, they'd be lucky to have you. You know yeah, I mean, I you know, I I'm excited to just be able to work with like different people, you know. So, whoever wants to work, like I'm open, you know what I mean. Um, I'm I'm here. Um, I'm not a hard guy to get a hold of by any means. No, I hear you. So one thing that stuck out to me, what you were saying, is like this is Jordan Sook Studios team. You know, you really hear about the team behind an artist. You know, in the mixed media space, like walk us through like the setup of an artist's team you know a lot of like kids don't really know that they these people have teams but behind them so yeah mm-hmm. break that down yeah like it's like one of the things i think a lot of artists like like having is like that mystique of like oh they created all this work you know yeah, lone like, wolf type of thing yeah exactly like michelangelo did all that by himself you yeah. know or like you know it's 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 you know i mean i get it he in a way you know he he did come up with it all, but like, there's a lot of um, people that go into it. And so, you know, I've learned from different artists that I've seen that have like large studios and different teams and tried to like um, apply that sort of theory to like, obviously a, a small scale. Um, and so, you know, uh, the team is consisted of like having someone like a technician uh, who can sort of be the uh, engineer to your ideas so if i say i want to make a a giant you know um spaceship that floats you know he's gonna ask how do we do that he's gonna break down what that actually looks like so working someone uh closely in that scale to help deconstruct your idea so you know how to actually construct it so in the example of snoop like you know what are we doing how do we build this you know 3d printing this this that that that, all those things um also, you want to have someone for your communications. So, uh, managing, you know, uh, media relationships, uh, as well as, um, different outreach, uh, stuff as well. I think that's like super important to have someone to just be able to assist you with that as well as planning, like, you know, um, your logistics, uh, as well as having someone to plan for your day to day operations or your, you know, your operations. And then, you also want to have someone to help you um, just like be there present to do stuff, having extra hands. It's like one of those things where people are going to wear different hats at times, you know? So my team is pretty uh, diverse and flexible and has different skills. It's funny because like they all have like degrees and stuff and like, you know, other stuff. So I think it's like really great. <laughs> and none of them use the actual degrees. Uh, well, no, they do. They do. They but do? it's like, okay. it's nice to see them like, travel and like do other stuff outside of like those degrees i think art has really created like a vehicle for those opportunities you know yeah i got you i got you no that's that's, that's a fact all right so now let's get into the business of it you know of of, of really art so from an outsider's perspective art 
is all about uh, you know how you pr- the price someone's willing to pay, and like what goes into establishing the value of a piece of art, you know um, that could be sold for thousands. In your opinion, um, well, one of the things I've learned and like I find it to be true is like you know they say art's only worth what someone's willing to pay, and so you know um, Hearst uses this example. He says if you have two rich guys uh, who you know have a lot of money and both want painting or something, the same thing, then all of a sudden it's worth a lot of money, you know. Um, I think uh, when money is attached, people um, sort of, uh, it means that they value the work uh, from a level that, you know, they're willing to take it on and take care of it. Um, and they, they see, uh, you know, its value in terms of what it means outside of just a monetary standpoint. I think uh, what you're finding right now is a lot of uh, people buying artwork to make money. Uh, it's being used a lot as like a commodity right now. So I think that uh, you find uh, a lot of that happening. Uh, but to actually value, you know, one's work is really tough. Um, because I might see it as one thing and someone else might see it as something else. And, you know, we could have a disagreement on that or we can agree uh, on that. And I think um, what you find is uh, it's really just when one's work gets valued at a certain price point, it's because a collective group of people over a certain period of time have all agreed that these works are this amount. And obviously you have your auction houses, you know, on that level of market with like Sotheby's and Christie's mm-hmm. and you know, those works of a lot of dead artists and some alive go for like millions of dollars. Right. So Jordan, I want to ask you one thing. So you, you're ta- we're talking about like value in art, right? So yeah. does, for example, does your name as an artist establish how much your work is going to cost? Like, let's say if an, in, as a no name artist, I can come in the game and I can, create this masterful piece of work and then it gets value, let's say like $3,000. And then someone as an established artist, like you can look at the piece of work uh, collectively, let's say like over 80% of the people think it's average, but he can command such a price. Does name of an, does the name of an artist like carry weight into like the price of a, of a piece of art? Does that factor into it as well? Yeah. Um, 100%. I think that's like, uh, that's probably the number one thing, you know, um, you find like these mega artists, uh, who like, um, they can pretty much, uh, sign something and like there's value attached to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's like one of the key things, but it's, it's weird because there's a sort of cause and effect relationship is that like you build your name off making good art mm-hmm. and, subsequently you get to like make more art off having a good name so it's yeah. kind of like it's, it's it's kind of a weird thing you know but i think um that's why you see a lot of artists when they're successful they're like in their 40s or 50s because like they've been doing it for like two three decades so you know um i think it's one of those things where it's just like uh art is so um interpreted uh by different people that you know it's like I might like something more than I like another thing, but the value of the thing I don't like is more. And I got to buy that one because it's worth more. 
you know? And so I think like the name being attached to it is, you know, a big thing um, that you yeah. find in art. Because I'm looking at it like I can come in, let's say someone listens to this podcast one day, right? And it's like, yeah, I want to be an artist. So essentially like you're chasing this uh, life of having pedigree, right? And then you're waiting for that like one year to hit where you can drop like one piece of art which you can sell for like like several hundred thousands of dollars. So I'm just trying to like look at it. I'm just thinking here out loud. Like, so what is the incentive for me to to come into this? Yeah, I could love art, but I wanna you don't be like a starving artist. You know what I'm saying? Definitely not. Yeah. Like, okay, so there's a story of uh I think uh Picasso was maybe um he was in France at this time. Cause he left Spain mm-hmm. uh, or maybe Italy. I'm not too sure. And he's at this coffee shop and this lady uh, comes up and recognizes him. He says, Oh, you're uh, you're Pablo Picasso. And uh, he's like, yeah, you know, he's just there. He's at the table. And then, so she pulls out um, a napkin and she says, draw on this napkin for me and I'll, and I'll buy it off you. Right. He draws like a bowl or something like that on a napkin. And so she opens up her wallet. She says, How much? He says, 20,000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he looked her dead and he said, 20,000. She was like, 20,000? I just saw you draw that there. He's just like, Yeah. She said, like, I just saw you. It took you two minutes to draw that. I said, Yeah. But it, he's like, but it took me X amount of years to be able to draw it in 20 minutes. And, or sorry, in two minutes. So uh, I think, you know, um, again, value is like, you know, so fluctuative and it's like how you view things, right? So in Picasso's mind, like that sketch is 20K easy. And like, I guarantee you now, you know, someone would be like, that sketch is definitely worth 20,000. That's small compared to probably what it's going for now, mm-hmm. you know? So. It's really what we as humans, we have this tendency to like, okay, we agree on this and that this is, you know, important. So I think with in the art world, it's like, okay, enough people are like, this artist's work is important enough that we want to support it. You know what I mean? And uh, they facilitate the infrastructure of that art, artist being able to create more artwork and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, it's like a, it's like with any art, right? As a musician or whatever. You gotta establish your brand. Like you gotta establish like your your mystique. I, I feel like art's all about mystique, right? So like the more mystique you are, like the more perceived value uh it looks like you have. I, I maybe. I mean like I don't know, you know what I mean? Like I think like that might be a thing you like people pick up. You know, I think artists can be they have abstract personalities a lot of mm-hmm. times. Maybe that kind of comes off as being mystique but in reality like a lot of us are just like weirdos you know i think i personally like i identify myself more as an athlete so like you know when someone like interacts with me it's probably not necessarily the same interaction as like they have with an artist who's like usually like painting in their studio all day you know um and i think it's really just uh you find maybe certain personalities in art um you have introverted artists you have extroverted artists you know 
Um, there's some artists that will do no press and there's some artists that will be, you know, looking to do press at all times and different things work. For example, like someone like Banksy, you know, um, one of the most successful artists, uh, you know, living right now. And, you know, his, it's the mystique of Banksy, you know, that like perpetuates this narrative. And then, you know, obviously I think he's making some pretty cool stuff as well, but, uh, you know. Um, it's really again what the society um, views that to be as. No, that's a fact. That's a fact. So I want to break something down just for the people who are listening that might be you know beginner artists, you know painting in their condos during the the lockdown during the the panda bear, you know like the panini. Get, yeah, they're the, through the panini. You know what are some of the <laughs> the panorama? You know what I'm saying? That's <laughs> a fact. So. They make the first paintings at home, and let's say they get reposted by, you know, um, the artist himself. Like, let's say they make a sketch of Kid Cudi, and Kid Cudi reposts it, and they're like, yo, I'm, I'm on my way. You know, like, yo, I'm going to do a gallery now. <laughs> <laughs> one retweet, one retweet straight to the gallery. You, you never know. You know, you never really know. Um, and I think it's funny because, like, everyone's story is different, you know. Uh, I've had that experience, but it doesn't work out that way. Um, I think it also depends on where you actually are in your art career. For me, like that stuff happened when, like I was in like year two of making art. You know what I mean? So it's just like, I think it really depends on where you are in your career. And if you're ready to, um, sort of like be in a certain place, I think I know for myself, like I was making art during that time, but I didn't know about art. You know what I mean? Like, I haven't really had a relationship with art at the time. Like, I'd, I'd like almost like slept with art, but I haven't actually like been in a relationship with art, you know? And so that was one of the things that, you know, once you get to like understand one a little bit of art history, as well as like why things are made and how they're made, you know, um, that changes like the type of art that you do make, you know? And so, uh, I can totally say to any artist that like, if they get that look, then definitely take it. You know what I mean? That's like always like exciting, you know, but unfortunately I don't think it happens necessarily that way. Unless, you know, I mean, maybe like Diddy just is like, yo, I'm going to buy that for a million dollars, you know? And then, and then you're like making waves, you know? So yeah, you're in, then you're in, you're in. So it, it really only takes one, you know what I mean? So, Mm-hmm. Uh, like with anything just, any business it just takes one idea and you're off yeah, after doing sure. many ideas yeah that's a fact but you know for the average person you know um that that's painting and like, all right i know my paintings are good i want to get them seen i want to get them sold what are some some actionable steps they can do to start building an actual business for their artwork okay yeah so one you definitely want to get the website up uh, that's like the first thing you want to get a website up. You want to be on Instagram and I guess TikTok is the thing now, but I, you know, I think the curation on TikTok has to be a little different. Uh, if you're an artist and it, it depends, you know, one of the things I've learned is figuring out the type of artist that you want to be. For example, the art world is really a lot like, um, a bunch of art villages in that, there's digital art, there's sculpting, there's, you know, 
post and like it can get to very niche markets or right? niche places so you need to figure out like where you fit in you know if you're a painter okay are you painting with acrylics are you an oil painter or you know if you're drawing are you using ink are you using pastels you know so figure out where you fit in first and then kind of going from there you know being someone like myself uh i identify as a, a mixed media artist you know um being the fact that like there's nothing that like I won't touch, you know, and so I think for me, um, that's probably going to be like the more common thread you see with artists, you know. But I think um, the first thing to do is figure out where you are, and then from there you can sort of brand yourself. So, you know, um, website, you know, Instagram, uh, and then also too like um, connecting with different people in the art scene. I find is like another big step, you know, other than, uh, putting yourself online. Um, I know it's COVID and stuff like that, but being able to, uh, connect with others and just like, you know, check out another artist's studio or, you know, get to see someone else's work. It just like, it keeps your brain going. And then like, you know, you get to become familiar in the art space. Um, you want, you mentioned about, um, connecting with people in the art space, right? And, Early on, when we were talking before, we spoke about the inclusivity of art, like how it's like very, um, you know, like for if you're not an artist, when you think about art, you think about it's like high class, prestige, like snobby a little bit. You mentioned about Yahya Kasumo, one of the people who was able to start as an outsider and then became accepted within the art community expand more on that right i think this is an interesting thing especially you as like you don't come off as like a you say you, you mentioned you're an athlete you're not like an artist right but you mm-hmm. you create great work so what goes into that acceptance process into like this art community it's crazy because like I, I don't feel like i'm accepted in the art community yet so it's just like i can only speak to uh what i've gone through um but one of the things is, you know, perception is a key thing, right? For example, like a urinal in a gallery versus a urinal in a bathroom, it's two different things, right? And so how people perceive you is like very important. And I think even more so how people perceive your work. So that's why being in like the right spaces um, that will allow your work to uh, be seen in the best light i think is important right um i think early on you know when i was starting doing uh shows at like blank canvas uh twist gallery you know different things like that different like pop-up things it's cool right and you connect with a certain audience but you find that like a lot of people especially like in the quote-unquote scene are not really in the art scene in the same way and you want to like kind of filter out who's out just to like you know be out and more so like find your like actual art lovers you know um yeah that's what i would say is like you know being accepted is like uh it's interesting it's definitely an interesting thing i think you know it's how people perceive you that's important and how you present yourself that um leads to that acceptance i think you know having proper documentation proper photographs um, are all important, you know, making sure that, you know, if you're sharing your work with uh, a gallery or someone or curator, you know, that like you're, um, you have a good art, art statement or an artist bio and, you know, pretty much that like 
when they look at your stuff, they're being able to look at you for an artist and not for anything else, you know? And I think how they perceive your work needs to be in a very uh, digestible and presentable way. You know, it's like when your mom would say, you know, put yourself together, you know, mm-hmm. it's because of like, you're going, it's exactly that same reason. So, yeah. Did you, uh, is there like a moment you had to learn to do that? Like when you came in, were you doing that right away or uh, what was that transition to realize that talk, go, walk us through that moment where you realize this is the best way to go on about things. Okay. So literally three years ago, probably like two, three days ago, my, one of my business partners, David uh, sent me a screenshot. So I did this uh, installation uh, with Ace Hill uh, at the time. Yeah. And uh, they, uh, weren't paying me a lot of money. I think it was like maybe like, you know, uh, $1,500, nothing too crazy. I did this installation with like these TVs, right? So I did this installation with these TVs that I painted and I kind of assembled them in a weird way. And I had like these wires hanging out. It was just embarrassing. It was like, <laughs> yo, like it was I amateur I, hour. Amateur hour at the finest, bro. Like, I kid you not. Like, this was probably, like... Like, I remember painting the TVs the same day of the installation. <laughs> That's how you knew it wasn't serious. You know what I mean? Like, I'm there. And, like, I'm loading TVs up into the back of my car, um, bringing them down from Barrie to Toronto. And I'm just, like, you know, cars, like, sitting so low because there's, like, six heavy, big old TVs in there. And they're still <laughs> wet, you know. And so I get there. And, um, you know, one of the directors from Ace Hill, like, he just looked at me, he couldn't even look at me in my face. Like, he was so upset. Uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, and then so, um, you know, with my, uh, partner Dave, I'm like, yo, one of these people are going to pay us our money. You know, I'm not making really any much money at this time. Um, and I'm like, yeah, when are we, uh, going to get, uh, this money? He's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Probably took him about two months for us to get that little $1,500 there. Um, simply because, like, they were not feeling the installation. Um, and so... Uh, but they were contractually, yeah, was, like, they had to pay up. Yeah, but what was I going to do? You know yeah. what I mean? Over Like, you know, to go after $1,500 is, like, you know, it'll cost you $1,500. So... <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not much you could really do in those situations, but they eventually did pay. Um, but yeah, we, uh, and we haven't really associated since I remember I went to the event and they didn't even want to let me in. I was just like, how dare you? You know what I mean? And so, yeah, that's crazy, uh, bro. Disrespect. Yeah. yeah no you know, it happens, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. I've, you know, I think one of the things like for me is like, I'm like pretty good at like taking notes. Um, and I think that's something you have to get used to as an artist is like, if you think of, uh, a baseball player, if someone's like batting at like, you know, 400, 500 or whatever, like that's really good. You know what I mean? Meaning that like, meaning that they're hitting, you know, like, what is that? Like five, 5% of things or whatever they're hitting. So it's like, it's tough, you know, but I think that like people don't really look at the failures, right? They look at like your successes. And so um i think that uh you learn from those as long as you can learn from situations like that that's what i would recommend to anyone so for me like that was the moment where i was like okay i gotta like start looking at how i put myself together and present like both my art as well as like you know uh 
the brand and stuff like that. And even now, like, you know, it's a constant refining of like, you know, sharpening yourself up right now. Like, you know, we're redoing the websites and stuff like that. So that we're always like, you know, showing ourselves in the best light. And I think people underestimate like, um, what that's like it's just like why would you rather buy that nike shoe for 150 dollars when they have a pair of sketches right there that'll do the same job for 45 you know and so that's exactly what i would say all right so you brought up something that was interesting is like the the installation game right because you you've killed that you've done installations for puma for big weed companies right walk us through the process of getting like from first email to the bag like Ooh. walk us through that because because like, a lot of email <laughs> i bet yeah. i bet I, and like like what can someone expect because you know an artist is like yo i just got i just got hit up by nike to do this installation what what should they expect when they you know start that process um so there's it's two there's like two levels to it right so one is like if you're reaching out to them and if they're reaching out to you, obviously one is better than the other, right? Um, if they're reaching out to you, you know, it means like they've obviously done some research already on your work uh, and like they're interested in working with you clearly. Um, no, It's funny because I have gotten like uh, from like these smaller like, um, you know, uh, magazines, for example, they'll be like, hey, uh, do you want to um, submit for to maybe be featured in our magazine? You know what I mean? I'm just like, well, then why did you reach out? Like, you know, so when they're reaching out to you, it's, it's usually a good thing, right? Um, that's the first step. Uh, usually you'll be dealing with someone um, usually in, you know, uh, in from an agency. So oftentimes if you're going to like, for example, the Nike, uh, Nike themselves, unless you're, talking with some high level execs which by then you're probably doing more of a national level project um and you're like probably on like the virgil levels of the world but usually on like uh a scale that you've seen me work on uh you would work with an agency as well um so nike will be like um agency x you know find us you know a dope artist to help us achieve these goals and the agency will either have a curator that they work with or um, will, you know, have someone internally that will be able to source and like hunt for artists. Um, so that would be the first thing is like uh, establishing who your point of contact is, because you and this person are going to develop a little bit of a relationship over the course of the project, depending on the complexity levels. And oftentimes, uh, that person has people on their end that they have to coordinate with and something like that. And so um, based on the sale of the project too, that's why I mentioned earlier, you want to have someone uh, on your team that does work with media and public relations and things like that to help coordinate that. Because if you're making art, right, there's only so much of this other stuff that you can do before you, you know, dry yourself thin. So depending on the scale of the project, you would need someone to support in that. So um, the first step, like I said, um, connecting with uh, your point of contact. Um, and then from there, uh, you figure out what they're looking for, if it's something that's even uh, feasible or even plausible. Um, 
and then you know they kind of give you a breakdown of uh what it is and that's where you kind of like have a little bit of room for negotiation if they say okay our budget is you know a thousand dollars right you might be like okay um this is what if you want this this is what it's going to cost and you might come at them with like hey so it's going to cost like 1500 can we make this work want to work with you guys you know what i mean and oftentimes like you know um you'll be able to go uh, have that back and forth especially if it's something that they've reached out to you for um now there's sometimes obviously like open calls where you know people would have submitted something and then someone gets selected and like you know things like the budget as well as the timeline is already like uh identified and sort of uh, blocked out big gems there you have it ladies and gentlemen just drop some heat you know blueprint um, facts facts so working towards wrapping up man um let's let's wrap on on the union station exhibit you know one of your biggest projects to date you know tell us about that um yeah yeah um so the project is titled thank you for keeping us on track uh it's you know revolving around the idea of unity and partnership uh, within the black community, especially the Canadian black community, uh, uh, the black porters that served on the uh, railway between the late uh, 1800s and the early 1900s. And it was a role that was really um, defined and carved out for black men, but it uh, helped to establish sort of like the middle class of uh, black Canadians. And these guys would, uh, eventually formed one of the first labor unions in Canada that opened up opportunity for other uh, minority groups to form their own labor unions and stuff. So a major contribution to Canada. So uh, when you see the piece, it's a uh, 15 uh, foot tall sculpture of a bunch of hats sort of piled uh, on top of a plinth there. And each hat's been sort of textured with uh, this sort of stucco like material um, and, hats are all black and it sort of looks like asphalt or concrete or uh coal you know and those are all symbolic of um structure and ingenuity and forward progression and as you know coal was used on the trains during those days and it gives something for the viewer to kind of think about what was powering the train at the time and so drawing those parallels but um yeah, my largest piece uh, to date, uh, currently up at uh, Union Station Toronto until uh, May 31st. So if you get a chance to check it out, check it out. It's open to the public. And I think it's actually one of the only exhibitions that's actually uh, open during COVID. I mean, like, I don't mean to brag, but that's pretty cool, like, you know, that, like, even amongst this COVID that we can, like, still be putting out our work. So, still yeah. out here, yeah. Yeah, you know, in these streets, so... Yeah, that's fine. It's- so y'all, make sure y'all go check that out. Yo, that's how that cut you guys off. That cut someone off. No, no, no. You're good, bro. You're good. No, you're oh, okay. Good. All right. Yeah. So y'all, make sure you go check that out. If you haven't already, make sure you like and subscribe to us. Um, and where can people find you on socials, man? Uh, at Jordan Souk, or uh, you can go to my website www.jordansouk.com. And also check out Jordan Souk Studios. That has like all the studio content behind the scenes, you know, how it's made. You can like literally see all that stuff right there. So yeah, check it out. Boom. And with that being said, the hustle is what you can control. So control your grind and control your life.
I'm Alex. And I'm Owen. Sweet, and I'm Jordan. Thank you. Hey. hey. And that's Hustle Over Everything, y'all. Peace. Peace out, guys. Thank you so much for listening. The conversation continues on our Instagram at 247Hustler. We post very frequently. And be sure to check out our merch at hustleovereverything.co. We have some amazing sweaters, hats, mugs, and a lot more. Lastly, our Proud to Pay program is linked in the description below. Thank you so much for your support. Talk to you next Monday. Peace.